0: All right, welcome to today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader, where we dive deep on all things leader-related. In today's episode, you're going to hear from one of my favorites, Brian Mora, who I have known now for about 25 years when he started in financial services at Ameriprise. And just a little intro on him so you know who you're hearing from. He is a real accomplished leader. He's been leading at Ameriprise Financial, now the Franchise Field Vice President for the state of Florida. Uh, and also, uh, uh, multiple territories really. He's brought that territory from 87 million to 135 million in revenue in uh, the seven years that he's been there. But here's an interesting, really interesting thing. He has moved up in leadership very fast, came in as a new advisor within a year, was a district manager. This was way at the beginning of his career. And a year after that, was a field vice president or branch manager. That's an unbelievable uh, quick progression, and, and not only did he do that, but he did it extremely well. He's won five outstanding leader awards at prize. One of those is a huge accomplishment. Five is is unheard of, and uh, he's a father to his two boys, Grayson and Sterling, uh, his wife Judy. He is a uh, triathlete as well. He has competed in many marathons and triathlons, uh, and also the Ironman, which is an unbelievable accomplishment. Uh, he has raised more than $50,000 to date uh, for uh, to honor uh, the memory of Chase Kowalski, uh, one of the children killed in the Sandy Hook school shooting back in 2012. Uh, he is an ambas- uh, Brian is an ambassador for the organization called Special Compass, which partners with able-bodied athletes with different able-bodied persons to help those with disabilities participate in running, cycling, and triathlon races. You're going to hear about Brian's view on having a balanced life and how that contributes to leadership. You're going to hear a lot about his views on change and how to lead people through change and yourself. Lots of really good stuff. Pay attention. Enjoy. Take notes. And here he is. All right. Welcome to today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader, where we dive deep on all things leader-related, leading yourself, leading other people, leading a great life. And speaking of leading a great life, I've got a real good friend of mine on today. I'm super excited to talk to him. Brian Mora and I have known each other, uh, I think, since 22 years ago or something, and uh very very excited to have uh Brian on he's a very accomplished leader and uh, somebody who really has some great uh stories of success in his life so Brian welcome to uh the show John thanks for having
1: me we've enjoyed these podcasts you've been doing congrats on uh on the new venture, and uh, thanks for
0: having me. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Well, thanks for joining. So, uh, I, I there's so many things that I'd love to ask you, and know, I want to get into some good stuff. Um, but maybe just for the sake of the audience who doesn't know you, maybe tell a little bit about your story, uh, and I'll, I'll release a couple things because I remember very, very early on getting a chance to meet you, and I saw I saw some great, great potential. It's awesome to see you fulfill it. Uh, but why don't you share a little bit about uh, how you kind of got started into this leadership path?
1: Yeah, so um, obviously, uh, you and I've known each other for for 20 years, and and I'll I'll suck up to the host right away and say that, uh, John, you're one of the people that inspired me to actually make a a deliberate decision and and purposeful decision to get into a a career in leadership. And I think, first of all, before I I got into the professional world, um, I sought leadership opportunities, and I, I wasn't even conscious of them as maybe a young kid or you know, as a teenager, um, that it was truly leadership or, or positions of influence. But I saw those things from a, a pretty early age, whether it was activities in school, I played sports most of my life. Um, I was always intrigued by the idea of, um, I think, number one, being part of something bigger than myself and being part of a group. I didn't like to do things in in isolation very often. And whenever I was in a group, I found myself wanting to, you know, sort of take charge or have a, a chance to lead and influence that group in those various mediums. And when I came into uh, you know the career that, that I've chosen for the last 20 years in the financial services industry, I began my career as a financial advisor, which you know one would argue is a career in leadership because if you're working with clients and you're advising clients, you're leading them and their families to make you know better life you know lifelong financial decisions. But where you and I met was um, you were in a position of of leadership as an executive uh, with the company I work for, Ameriprise Financial. And I was really inspired by not just the other great financial advisors that were around me, but the great leaders like yourself who were influencing our behavior and helping us make decisions and helping us deal with times of, you know, change and challenge and things like that. And so I, I knew, you know, I was an early 21, 22 year old that I wanted to have a chance to, you know, expand scope and and have a bigger influence over a larger group of people, really for the pure side of leadership. So I've never been interested in in the management side of telling people what to do or having any kind of authority. And I think as we've learned and all grown and matured, um, the authority only, you know, really goes so far. Most people need to be, you know, inspired, motivated and tap into what matters to them. And I think that's what leadership's about. So um, it's been a great journey for me. I've made a ton of mistakes and learned a lot along the way, as we all have.
0: Well, it's interesting because, you know, I was thinking about this the other day and I, I actually vividly remember, and this was back in uh, 2001, I think you started, right? Yep. So I remember vividly uh, it was a Monday night class or whatever it was. And that's how uh, I, I met you because you were coming in during the during the uh, licensing process. And we had a, a room full of people or, or you know, a, a bunch of people in there. And I just remember you stuck out in my mind because I you just had this really um, intent uh, very thoughtful way about yourself. You seemed a lot more mature than your age would normally indicate, and I just—you were—you were very meticulous about everything you did. You were very thorough, and I just—that sticks out in my mind. So it's awesome to see you now fulfill. You know, you're—you're you're a uh, franchise field vice president with Ameriprise, leading uh, multiple regions, which we'll get into that in a little bit, but. To take me back to when you were first starting, because you made a really fast rise within the organization, too. I think one of the fastest I've seen, going from advisor to district manager, district manager to field vice president, pretty incredible. How did you do yeah, that? Yeah, you look- I, I look
1: back on that. That's, I don't, and I made a comment a minute ago and said, you know, we, as leaders, we grow and you make mistakes and, and things. It, it's not so much the, the, the mistakes that I reflect on back then, but really getting opportunities to lead and influence at an early age is uh, is a really interesting experience. So to your point, um, I guess the first leadership role I had an opportunity to to have was only a year into my professional career, starting at 23 years old. And while it was a small group of people, when I reflect back on that, one of the more interesting dynamics is almost all of them were older than me. Um, and almost all of them had not only more, you know, professional experience, but more life experience, things I couldn't relate to. Like I'm a father now and I have you know two boys who are six and three, but I had, you know, almost no appreciation at the time for any of the balance dynamics that it would take to be a mom or a dad and, and balance a professional career and how to be, you know, communicative and sensitive to those types of things. Um, I just, you know, to your point, I was very driven and always have been driven. But when you're a 22 or 23 year old leader and you're thinking about wanting them to accomplish things for themselves and wanting you to accomplish things for yourself, you know, you tend to just get this tunnel vision and say, you know, we should just work eighty hours a week because I can do it and I'm interested in it. Why wouldn't you do it? You know, yeah. so yeah, I've I've had an opportunity to to get into positions of leadership, you know, both yeah. both professionally and even you know in some of the community endeavors um, at an early age. And uh, those are you know those are some of the most beneficial learning lessons that I've had. Um, actually, working with and learning from people that you know were a bit um, older and more experienced than I was.
0: So let me ask you: I mean, was that how, was that uncomfortable? I mean, I gotta say, because I get the question I get from leaders all the time is, okay, hey, I, I'm getting promoted or I just got promoted. It's uncomfortable for somebody who's now supposed to be leading the people that they were peers with. But in your case, it's not only that, but you did it so quickly. And you're now leading people that are you know twice your age, maybe even three times your age. I mean, how uncomfortable was that when you first got into it?
1: So I got my first VP opportunity at twenty five years old. and about about a month into the role, I learned that there was um, another individual who at the time, he was about fifty five. So he's somebody who's going to be in my organization and in my office. I mean, I tease him now. I could I could call him out by name on the podcast and not feel bad about it because he and I joke about this all the time. We've now become, you know, truly friends and and have, you know, consulted and worked together for almost fifteen or maybe even longer years. But about 30 days into the role, I I heard from someone else that on my first day, again, being 25 years old, I came into the office and I did a a team meeting with everybody. And that person said to others, not in my presence, so I didn't hear it but they said, Hey, where do you think we should set the playpen up for this guy? (laughs) And, and, and he, it's not what you want them to be saying when (laughs) you're right. right. So, so how seriously and how much credibility and how, you know, how how was I going to be received? You have somebody who, you know, is one of the elder statesmen in the office and and was, by the way, a a top performer in that office. So was well-respected. He wasn't. So he had a lot of influence. Yeah. Yeah. He's an influencer. Um, He's somebody who you obviously would want to have in your corner ultimately. And, And he's undermining your, you know, your not authority, so to speak, but your, you know, your influence and your inspiration. And, um, you know, it's interesting. He and I, you know, ultimately worked really well together, built a long relationship. And he calls me still frequently to, you know, ask for advice. But I tease him all the time about that. Whenever he does pay me a nice compliment and say, you're doing a great job or you're really helpful, I'm like, well, you know, it's good I climbed out of that playpen and and made my way into uh, your world.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, you bring up a great point because I think that's and that's something I've talked about before is, you know, when you it's the there's a leader in that in any organization that sometimes is not even the leader, especially in a situation like that where you've got a new leader coming in you know, where do the eyes in the audience go when there's a question or people want to see a reaction? There's usually one person in that group that has the influence and it sounds like he was in that case. So how did you, how, how did, how did you influence him and kind of get him onto your side and how important was that for you turning the organization around to have him kind of as an advocate, do you think?
1: Yeah. So it, it, it was really, it, it, first of all, it was really important to have him and a few other key influencers ultimately on your side. Um, I, I think, and, and I've done more with this over the course of time. I definitely didn't do it as well when I was 25 years old, but I did it well enough to win someone like him over. I think, I think there's certain things people want to know about you when you're going to be a leader, uh, a takeover as a new leader of any organization. I think they want to know, number one, what you stand for and what your values are. And so without just saying, hey, everybody, here were my values, I began to demonstrate and try to um, portray honesty, integrity, high communication. I also think that you demonstrate humility to people who have experience and that you're looking to partner with them and learn from them. So I brought him in and said, I want to actually know what's been working well within the organization from your perspective and what things, if you were me, would you fix? And would you be willing to partner with me to help fix some of those things? You'd sort of make them part of the solution and ask for their help. Now, you can't always control people's attitudes, right? If that person had such a big ego or such a big Heisman in front of me to say, you know, Brian, I don't want anything to do with you. And this is your office and your problem to fix them. That's an even bigger challenge. But thankfully his overall demeanor, because I didn't come in and try to act like I knew more than him, or I was going to mess with him, which is one of the other things I think people in it, when you take over as a new leader, they're curious about, it's not only what do you stand for? It's, you know, what changes are you going to make and how might you quote unquote mess with me?
0: Yeah, yeah
1: because Even if they had a bad leader before you sort of settle into a normalization of, I know this bad leader's habits and how to navigate them and avoid them and so on and so forth. So people are always curious, what are you going to do to mess with me? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the last question people ask which is how are you going to add value for me? Right? So what do you stand for? How are you going to mess with me and, and what, you know, what, where will you add value? And I tried to demonstrate, you know, who I was as a person, Tried to demonstrate a level of humility that I wasn't going to quote unquote mess with them. Um, and I tried to demonstrate that I could add some value by bringing him in as a partner. And uh, helping him be part of some of the solutions.
0: That's so important, and that's that's uh, that's great, you know. And it becomes about evident that it's about them, not you. It's you know, and I see leaders in organizations a lot of times they make that mistake. They come in and and really want to uh, you know make a statement or flex their muscles, so to speak, or just really show their new power and exert their new power, and maybe even make somebody a target of that and you know yeah maybe that works in the movies but uh in real life when you've got a you've got a, a long journey with these people and this person uh, your approach had obviously worked effectively right you're getting their help and their support not them working against you
1: yeah so it's funny you say that so so a, a, it's about a decade ago i had an opportunity to take on a, a new role uh, in the organization and i had I had to meet many many new people i mean hundreds of new people that would be under my you know, my organization at the time. And I can recall one particular meeting that I had where I left that meeting and we've all had these, you know, meetings, conversations where, you know, you get in the car, you hang up the phone and you go, that was one of the best meetings. Like I I felt like I was excellent. I felt like the partnership was excellent. I felt like it went really well. And the day after I got like a 10 paragraph email from this person wasn't, they didn't say that the meeting went badly, but they had wanted me to ask them a few questions that I didn't ask and so i've gotten into the habit now whenever i you know in, in, embark upon a new leadership relationship you know one of the things that ultimately comes out at the end is you know john what questions have i not asked you that, that you would want to tell me about you know is it is it more about you is it more about your business is it more about your goals or something about your family is there anything that i haven't asked you that would be key for me to know in helping to lead and support you it's kind of like the broad open ended what else would you want to tell me how else could i help you know support you Um, because I I failed to ask one or two questions that that person was just hoping that I was going to ask. And Uh, then they sent me a 10 paragraph email to tell me some stories about them. And it was kind of background related. I want you to know, you know, kind of how I grew up and how, how I got to this spot and what drives me and motivates me. And, and you didn't ask that, and I wanted to share it with you. So that was a good break for me a decade ago.
0: That's great. And that's, so now you do that with any meeting that you have at the end of that, you'll ask that question. Is there anything that you would have wanted to tell me or that you should, that, that you'd want to share with me? That's great. To give takeaway from that, yeah, I think that's true. You know, a lot of people they. First of all, I think you taking the time. Uh, first of all, I think the good point there is a lot of leaders will go through things and have a, a, a mistake or not really learn from it. That's changed now the way that you lead other people from that one interaction, which is great, and it just exemplifies the point that people want to know that their leader understands them and really, you know, ma- knows what makes them tick because there's a lot about people. And usually you don't see it at first glance or second or third or fifth. You know? Absolutely. Cool. So you've been through a, I know, different periods of time just since 2001. Uh, you, there's been so much change. Um, you know, you've had change uh, you personally, uh, professionally people around you, society, everything like that. And I think that's one of the most challenging things a leader has to face is when is helping people and helping an organization prepare for and adapt to change. What are your thoughts on that and how what goes into doing that really well? Because I know you do.
1: Yeah, so so I, I think I think one of the most interesting things about change and, and this is such a cliche or I guess it's just a phrase we all say, right, change is inevitable and change is constant. Those two things are true, and yet the human nature is fascinating to me, John. Almost no one from a human nature perspective jumps out of their seat with excitement when change is upon them because we're, all, I mean, largely all of us are creatures of habit and, and creatures of comfort. Even for those of us who are achievement-oriented people, you become you know habitual in your routines and you do get comfortable with the things that you're accustomed to. So I think the first thing to know when you're a leader in an organization is that almost everybody, including yourself, by the way, if you really observe yourself, almost everybody will struggle with change. And we've seen evidence of that consistently. The other broad comment that I would make about uh, change, and then I'll drill a little bit deeper into some thoughts I have on that, is that I think as a leader, you need times of change in order to really prove your worth. Because I think back, and if I reflect on most of the uh, you know, most of the most impactful relationships I have with people. I think if you called and interviewed people, John, that you had a big impact on or who said, you know, John Larito was a great leader for me. If I called them and interviewed them or you interviewed people that would say that about me, they wouldn't say, you know, John was a great leader because when things were going perfectly, when the water was as calm and smooth as possible, he just called and checked in and told me that I was doing a great job. That's not what they're going to say. They're going to give me a story or an example of when either they were in personal crisis or the world, whether it was the stock market, the economy, a pandemic like coronavirus, there's going to be something that was causing change, discomfort for them or the, you know, an industry or, a you know, in, in totality. And you as a leader or me as a leader or anybody listening as a leader rose to the occasion. And so what I think about as being a leader of change is a couple of key principles, John. I think number one, you have to have really frequent and high communication. Like your communication needs to go up in periods of change. Your personal visibility needs to go up. So depending on what type of environment you lead in, some people lead in a virtual environment where they're not like in the same office building. And frankly, nobody's in office buildings much right now, but um, like you might not be in the same physical location as the people you lead. So how can you increase your visibility with more phone calls, more Zooms and WebExes and Skypes? How do you project calm? Right. I think about, you know, a lot of change causes unrest and, and discomfort and anxiety. How do you project calm and a steady hand as a leader? How do you also tell the truth and be vulnerable? Like, it's OK to not just say, yeah, John, this change is big, but it's, like, it's going to be fine. Like, how do you actually say, you know, I, I, too, have some concerns about this. And here are some things that I'm doing in anticipation of those concerns or how it could go wrong or where a problem could arise. And be authentic. And then the very last thing I think about as a principle of change is, can I communicate and demonstrate that I see opportunity? Um, While most people are hiding under their desk, and they're worried or they're, you know, weeping, how can we actually stand on, on, you know, on the street corner and find opportunity in this change or this crisis? Look, I'm not one for politics. But I will say that if you look at the Coronavirus pandemic that we've had, I think this has been demonstrated really well, regardless of your politics. You know, New York City was one of the epicenters of the coronavirus. And every single day, the governor of New York, uh, Governor Cuomo, he held a press briefing. And these are the things that he did. So, again, regardless of your politics, you have to look at that and go, we were in a life and death crisis. And what he did every single day was be visible. He got on TV and held a press conference every single day. He communicated very frequently and with great clarity about what was happening. He projected calm and he told the truth. Like he didn't get on there and go, you know, hey, guys, nothing to worry about here. No one's going to die. Everything's OK. He's like this many people are dying. and These are our risks. Mm-hmm. Um, he had tried to anticipate, you know, and, and some may criticize him for, you know, anticipating more problem that didn't happen and opening more hospitals that weren't needed. We can get into the weeds of that. Um, but I think he tried to do many of those things. And again, politics aside, some people will say they didn't want to hear a word from him because he's a Democrat. I'm not very political, but I do think in a crisis, he was visible. He was communicative. He told the truth. He tried to be authentic. Mm -hmm. I thought it was a pretty good demonstration of what to do in times of change and crisis.
0: It's so important. You know, you look at like... The, the, and I had a, another leader tell me that their his his people told him that he was doing these Zoom calls, but he wasn't having the video on, and it, and his people were like, "We need to see your face. We just want to see your facial expressions because it's com- comforting and calming." And and you think about that, like an email, you know, is okay. It's it's a level of communication. It's better than nothing, but it's not nearly as effective as the sound of your voice and that's not nearly as effective as the sound of your voice accompanied by your face and ideally even in person but and leaders forget that a lot of times and i think the reason sometimes is they don't know the answer and they feel like they need to know the answer and hey i don't want to be in front of my people unless i i can tell them exactly what's going to happen but what i hear you saying which is so great is you you let them in you open the door a little bit and let them you know see through the window a little bit of of how you're thinking and yeah you, you know you are Sir, this is challenging. They don't need to see you as this, uh, you know, this this superhero that's impervious to any kind of uh, uh, emotional anxiety or anything. But but you give them a little bit of a sense of relatability with that. But you're still leading them by helping shape their thoughts a little bit because people's thoughts, it seems like, they can go in a dark place. You know, and when when change is happening, it can be a total resistance to it. And Hey, I'm not doing it. I'm not making a change to uh, not really going down as fast as they need down the new road, because they're still thinking about the old road. Right. But yeah. Yeah. So it's it's
1: funny you say that. Right. So I, so I think about,
0: I I think people see through and view you as very inauthentic,
1: um, you know, lacking authenticity. If, if you're talking about something that, especially that you know, that that individual will perceive as challenging to change through and you act like the first time you heard it, you just immediately embraced it and it was no big deal. You know, many of your listeners are probably familiar with one or more of like what are called the change cycles or change models that are out there. I've seen two or three of them over the course of my career. But when you look at those change models, and if you've never seen one, you can literally just Google like the change cycle or a change model. They're very much like the processes and steps of grief, right? Loss start at losses first, something's being taken away from me potentially, there's doubt as to what the new thing is that somebody is being introduced Or, You know, let's take technology. We're replacing the old technology with something new. First thing is I feel lost because I like the technology that I got used to. Now I doubt whether the new one will even work. And I've got discomfort because I have to learn some new skills and new buttons to push and new places to click. Those are the first three steps of of dealing with and, and, and grasping change. But then eventually... You start to move to the kind of the positive side of the curve where you begin to discover and you understand, and then eventually you embrace and you implement. I think it's truly vulnerable and ultimately very authentic to say to people, when I first heard about this, or when I first got it, or I first experienced it, I too felt a sense of loss. And I had a lot of doubts about it. Like I challenged the people that brought it to me and told me about it. I was like, guys, this isn't going to work. I had doubts, but then I started to listen a little bit more and I started to click on the buttons a little bit more, and here's what I discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and those kinds of messages and communications and stories, it doesn't mean people will, will stop on a dime and go, oh, okay, because Brian went through loss and doubt and discovery, I'll, I'm in, I'll just go over the hill with him. Mm-hmm. It it does demonstrate, though, that you've you experienced some of the same things and yeah. you can relate.
0: To it's interesting. And, and this, this is, in my mind, one of the toughest things as a leader. And I, I remember my, myself making probably one of my bigger business mistakes because of not dealing with change effectively. I remember and and thinking through it, it was a great learning because it was the company was changing uh, a, an approach on how to do a very important initiative. And and we were so good at the old way, like you know, best in class. We had great results consistently. And this new way was totally uncomfortable, uh, unproven. We didn't know how to do it. Uh, And now we went from being at the top to now being at the starting line. And I remember my own Displeasure and uncomfort with it, and even ultimately allowing myself to be convinced by my people, which that's on me, that hey, the old way was better. We were doing so well with this, let's just go back to it. And we actually did for a period of time and then ultimately went back to the new change. Anyways, it costs us, you know, probably a couple of years. Um, and I think about how easy it is, even. At that time, it felt like, okay, you know, I've learned so much about leadership. Sometimes leaders, even though you're far in and you've, you know, gone through a lot of different stuff, sometimes you're still, everybody, like you said, nobody likes change. It's easier to just stay on the path that you know, rather than get off, you know, the highway onto this uncharted territory, you know, (laughs) it's tough. Yeah. But, you know, the other thing I think about there too is um,
1: I also try to reflect and observe, you know, where change has come from. And, and who ultimately led it, and is most of the change that I made and the progress that I've made, is it because I had something deep within me or did somebody else end up helping me through that process? And I don't mean like a coach or a consultant helped me individually, but rather was the change really forced upon me by someone who had a longer term vision or had studied more or commissioned more information as to why that change would make sense and what I find is that even as a you know, someone I consider myself an achievement-oriented person who wants to be open-minded and wants to evolve and wants to advance, I find that most of the really big progressive changes that have happened for me have been things that other people were smart enough to see and anticipate and push and that I ultimately embraced and was smart enough to listen to, to other people versus, you know, just me waking up one morning and saying, you know, I think I'm gonna change today and and do away with this habit or do away with this routine. It ultimately came from other people that were you know, really well-researched or really, really well-informed. And that helps me now when other change comes about, whether it's change that impacts me or change that I'm asked to lead to others, is I ultimately ask myself a set of questions like, what process did this person who's bringing the change to us, what process did they go through? What research have they looked at? What studies have they commissioned or tapped into? Or what's the proven outcome for this? And I tend to be more trusting and it it still creates discomfort. And um, it's not like I'm not a human. I can turn that emotion off. It still creates a level of discomfort. But if I can use more of a linear logic process to who the person is, what process they went through, it does help me personally. Um versus just you know being
0: emotional about it yeah that's a great point let me ask you a question so and there's different schools of thoughts on this and you got a lot of a lot of leaders listening to this that are either looking to get into leadership or they just want to lead themselves better uh, how there's kind of two different schools of thought. Some, some people I talk to as leaders say, you know what, I've advanced and I've developed as a leader because I've invested everything in this one part of my life and I kind of put the blinders on the business and you see a lot of people do that. They they're, in, they're just totally uh, uh, dive into it and immerse themselves fully in it. And then you've got others that say, you know what, I really feel that my other areas or other arenas of my life Impact that, and if I'm doing other things outside, that's kind of carrying into who I am as a leader. What's your thought on that?
1: Yeah, so I mean, I think if you talk to most people in my personal life, uh, that they would they would probably compliment me on my drive and passion, but ultimately acknowledge that I probably have over invested and spent maybe just a few too many hours in the real professional work sense. At the same time, John, I think, you know, I I can't speak for everybody and especially all of your listeners. For me, as I've grown both in age and maturity, you know, from my 20s to my 30s, now to my 40s, as I've expanded to, you know, become a father, and I've always been interested in things in the community. I'm not sure which comes first now, the chicken or the egg, but I do know that I'm a leader in some other capacities, uh, especially as as a father that are far more important than my leadership role within a corporation. Um, one example that I would share with you that, that has been a big passion point of mine for quite some time is um, everybody, in, you know, in your audience will re- remember and recall the, um, the unfortunate uh, incident at Sandy Hook um, up, you know, in New England, where you live back in 2012. Well, through, you know, uh, through a series of connections, I, I got introduced to one of the families that lost their son in, in the school shooting at Sandy Hook. And I learned about that little boy that he was a, an avid triathlete at just five, six years old. Like he told his family, he found out about triathlons. He said, I want to do a triathlon. And there was a kid's triathlon starting at five or six years old. And he, he signed up for it and completed a triathlon at six years old. His name is Chase Kowalski. Wow. And that's, that's a passion point for me as a hobby outside of work. I've done a variety of endurance sports, marathons, triathlons, things like that. And I worked with the family, um, you know, through a series of connections. And we launched a grassroots organization. Um, and, and the big race that we do, you know, the, or the big endeavor is called Race for Chase. And we raise money and ultimately help other kids learn how to become triathletes, to learn how to swim. And we buy bikes for underprivileged kids and teach them how to run and run a series of triathlons through YMCA partnerships. And I share that with you because, you know, the question becomes, do I do things like that so that I'm a more effective leader at work? Or do I use some of the leadership skills that I gained in my first 10 or 15 years as a leader in a corporate environment to help ultimately figure out how to raise money and mobilize groups of people for a cause that is significant and substantial? I think it's that I was fortunate to gain some leadership skills, probably through corporate work, that I can then bring into the community, bring into my family life, things like that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, and I I, I agree, I think, um you know, I did an exercise some many years ago where it was a, it was a spoke of a uh, wheel and spokes, and on each spoke was different areas of your life. It was business, it was financial, it was health, it was spiritual, it was family, it was relationships, it was uh, everything, and, and you rated on a scale of 1 to 10 of how well that area of your life was going. And uh, it was amazing because it's rare that somebody is a 10 in one area and like a 2 or 3 in every other area. You find that it's kind of like pretty how it goes in one arena is how it affects another and I've taught to so many leaders and and what I find is the best ones really are very they're diverse they've got a lot of things in their life and people in their life it's not just this one sliver that they've put everything into um and you as being you know a great father and family man and uh, you know, a triathlete and everything like that. I, I know that contributes to your success in the business world. If nothing else, it's, it's people wanting to emulate you, right? I mean, that's, I would, uh, uh naturally assume that makes you a more well-rounded people person that people want to follow. I would think.
1: I would hope so. I also think to your point, there are times probably when you, if you were to do that kind of hub and spoke model that somebody might be firing on a 10 and they might be a one or two in an area, and, you know, the red light splashing in that area, by the way, like something's about to fail, mm-hmm. um, you know, personal relationship, relationship with friends, relationship with parents or kids or, or the business, right? If I'm just, you know, vacationing months and months and months and never investing in work, my work may be failing. Mm-hmm. I will also say definitely one of the maturations for me is I, I used to take it as a badge of honor when I was younger, that I took very little time off. Like I thought it was, I thought it said something about me that I was so hardworking that I never really, you know, took advantage of, uh, you know, being a, an, an employee, I'm not a business owner, right? So as an employee, I never took advantage of PTO paid time off. And I, I just look back and say to myself, how foolish do you look and sound? That's probably an example of something at 25, the people who were 50 looked at me and said, you know, you're, you're an idiot. Like wh- why are you bragging about, you know, I haven't taken a day off or a vacation or anything like that. And so yeah. I, uh, I, I still probably don't strike the perfect balance at that, but, um, I, I I like to proudly sort of boast, boast out and say, I'm going to take some time off. or I'm taking a week off here and, and do those kinds of things. I think that balance is important. And people, if, if you ultimately want followership, you, you want people, to your point, John, who do want to emulate you. And I, I look back now and go, I don't know anybody that wants to emulate the person that's so overworked and so overstressed that they can't find a way to take a day off.
0: Yeah, spending. I agree. I totally agree. The people that I've always followed are people that I, I loved their life and how they lived and live life, not just excelled in the one area. What do you think being a father has taught you about leadership?
1: <laughs> um, so it it absolutely teaches you uh, it teaches you patience, without a doubt. Um, first of all, it's the most rewarding thing in the world. I mean, I know you as a dad. There's just I've talked to people who were you know somewhat recently you know about to have their first child, and I one of the things I say to them is that people who had kids would always tell me before I had kids, you know, having kids is so great or having kids is so amazing. And I could just never connect the dots on that. Like I'm I'm the youngest in my generation. So I didn't grow up around a lot of other little kids. And I would even admit now that I I really wasn't that passionate about having kids for a while. Like I I didn't have it in my mind. Like I have to have kids. I can't wait to be a dad. And and I try to tell people that who don't have kids now that like, I'm not going to bother wasting a lot of words. You're just going to get it when that, when your kid arrives and as your kid grows, you're just going to get it. And you're going to go, yeah, there's almost no words you can put to that. But I think that there's tons of leadership in, involved in being a parent. And my kids are still really little. So I know, you know, as people get their kids into middle school and high school and off to college, leadership never sort of ends on the parent journey either. Mm-hmm. Heck, I, I still connect to my parents, and my mom and dad give me leadership all the time, uh, yeah. you know, 21 years old. Um, but it, it's interesting to see some of the, the nuances in, in your kids. So, like my, my six year old, uh, his name's Grayson. He got involved and started to play sports at about four you know four and a half or five and i've watched him you know whether it's dealing with discomfort in sports um, or his worry or concern there how oh, there's a kid on another team that's better and like at five or six years old you're just trying to help them have fun and teach some basic skills as much as i'm achievement oriented i don't have those kinds of conversations like we have to win today right i'm not doing any of that kind of stuff uh we talk about winning he's conscious of winning But I've watched, you know, discomfort take place because there's a kid on another team that's better and is matching up with him in basketball, for example. And I've watched um, disappointment when, you know, there's there's resiliency that's taught in being a dad, you know, disappointment, not, you know, not just through sports, but other things that take place. So I think there's incredible uh, lessons that come from from being a dad, uh, being a parent, you know, mental toughness, resiliency. Change discomfort, all that stuff.
0: It's kind of cool. It's the you know, it's first of all, and uh, it it you certainly learn a lot about yourself. And and as your kids get older and they become different people, and your leadership style needs to change. um, That's a whole learning and of itself. You know, the amount of influence you have, or how you what you need to do to have influence, and how you need to let them grow at some point I know I've learned from my own mistakes and successes like everybody does um, so in and uh, talk to me a little bit about the 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 uh, your triathlon uh, triathlons and everything because that to me is fascinating because one is uh, I can barely run, let alone run, bike, and swim. And I did one, and I almost died uh, doing a triathlon out there. But tell me about it. I mean, how do you, how do you, how do you tell tell everybody first of all what an Ironman is because not everybody knows uh, what is entailed in that.
1: Yeah, so I'll define the sport and what I do, and then people can think. You know, for those that don't do it, can think I'm crazy. But there's there's great leadership in this as well because I can tell you that. Whatever the personal achievements are, or what would sound like our personal achievements of accomplishing anything through endurance sports, um, I only cross those finish lines due to support and to leadership of you know some some friends of mine who I do it with. So, um, an Ironman is is the kind of the brand name for the longest distance triathlon that there is. It's a 2.4 mile swim, followed by a 112 mile bike, followed by a full marathon, which is a 26.2 mile run. Uh, most Ironman events, you have a max time of 17 hours on the course to finish in order to, you know, cross the finish line and be considered an Ironman. Um, I've only done one full Ironman. They have a half Ironman distance, which is literally half of those distances, right? A 1.2-mile swim, 56-mile bike, and a 13-mile run. And I've done many of those. Um, that's kind of my my sweet spot for a distance of, of racing. But um, it, it's interesting. It was an evolution, John, of, of even belief for myself and, you know, friends of mine kind of convincing me to go there. So I, I was a team sport athlete in in high school. Um, you, know, you know, football, basketball, baseball, and I began endurance sports just with five k runs, which almost everybody's either walked or run a five k, a three point one mile run. There's so many of them for charity in every community, and I, I can remember like, wow, I need to train for this five k run, and what do I eat, and how do I hydrate it. I made a really big deal in my mind about doing this first three mile run. <clears throat> excuse me, and <clears throat> wow, excuse me. And it just evolved from there. I did many, many 5Ks and worked on getting better with my time. And then eventually did some 10Ks, which are the double distance, and said, maybe one day I can run a half marathon, and maybe one day I can do a full marathon. And I ended up in your neck of the woods in Boston one time doing the Boston Marathon. And I had a friend of mine who is also in the financial business and said, you know, just running is pretty hard on your body. And as you age and get older, you might appreciate some variability of that. And you may want to get into the sport of triathlons, which would allow you to swim and bike and run. And so I did that in triathlons. They have short distances, too. They have really small ones that you can do in under an hour. And I began to do those. And my friends who I was training with who had already done Ironman began to talk to me about it. And I can just tell you, I had absolutely no conviction in my mind whatsoever that it was even remotely possible to swim 2.4 miles, to bike 112 miles and to run a marathon. I was just, I've, It physically can't be done. And in fact, the first time I attempted the half Ironman, which is a 1.2 mile swim, the lifeguards literally fished me out of uh, Biscayne Bay in Miami because I almost drowned. I couldn't even swim 1.2 <laughs> miles. So um, it was encouragement and it was accountability and it was support. And it was like, hey, here's our plan. And so while I get the medal and I get to say, yeah, I'm an Ironman, I can tell you that a couple of my buddies who had done it before and kind of pushed me and led me and held me accountable, um, it, it got done because of that.
0: So what, so what is that like, man? I mean, I, when you are running, biking and swimming nonstop for, you know, hours upon hours, half a day, I mean, what is going through, what is going through your mind and what is happening to your body? I mean, I can't even imagine that.
1: So one of the, one of the unfortunate parts of Ironman is that people do end up in medical situations and need to drop out of the race. And you'll see that during the course of a race. You'll see people on the side of the road receiving medical assistance. They clearly dropped out of the race. And now an EMT is giving them an IV bag or attending to them. And you definitely go through periods of of a race. You know, so um, when I did Ironman Florida in 2015, I was probably at mile 75 or 80 of the bike. And I started to get really nauseous and really like sick. And it's more of a mental game at that point than it is a physical game. Because you start to ask yourself doubt-oriented questions like, am I about to experience a medical event? Should I get off the bike and drop out? Or am I just going through the natural pain and discomfort that's expected, right? Like if you're going to endeavor upon a sport like that, you don't go into it thinking you're going to feel good all day. So kind of anticipating or embracing the suck, and is, this, is, the, the, he, is,
0: is the bike the second, so you still have the, You still have a, mar, a full marathon, you still have like 40 more miles and a full marathon ahead of you when this is happening?
1: Exactly, right? That's so true. Yeah, it's 100% correct. So I'd wow. swam the 1.2 miles, I'm at 75 or 80 on the bike, and you're mentally going, am I experiencing a medical event? Um, what am I feeling and what am I thinking and, and what's going on here? And, and, and do I just need to, you know, sort of breathe and hydrate and eat some food and, And I did I did those things, and I ultimately came through that that about thirty or forty minutes of real nausea and real discomfort feeling. But um, yeah, your body goes through a ton, and you're by yourself, so you're not allowed to like hang out with anybody else. So there, I would say for all the physical training, it is more of a mental toughness endeavor than anything because you're alone for a long time, Mm -hmm. you're alone with your thoughts, you're observing your body in you know really intricate ways, like got this little pain in my leg right here on my knee is my knee injured or am i just feeling discomfort yeah. you know and those are great lessons too right it's like am i you know in business am i just feeling some discomfort right now based on what's happening or am i actually going to die yeah. i don't know too many people that died from a business change right 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 um but you couldn't couldn't iron me of course
0: yeah. did you uh did you almost quit
1: for sure um there, there's no doubt that um I shouldn't say that everybody, I I think there are almost everybody in that sport in that that specific distance. There are periods of time where you think um, where you think you can't continue. Um, I was that the run was through uh, local neighborhoods um, like people and people. That's one of the more interesting parts about that particular race. Ironman Florida, the spectators are not just like lined on the street. You're running through homes and neighborhoods. So, John, I'm coming through your neighborhood. A thing to do as a tradition is you're having a party at your house. So, you have 30 people in your front yard, you're barbecuing. It was college football season, people had TV set up. So, I'm having to run at six or seven o'clock at night after I've been up since five in the morning and you're partying with your friends. And at one point, I I laid out on someone's lawn and they were nice enough to give me like some chicken soup and I drank a Coke. You know, I'm not a big soda drinker normally, but like just for energy and taste and. but I was pretty convinced when I was laid out on their lawn that I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to get back up. And I was, I was probably at mile 16 of the run. So I, you know, on one hand, you're so close to the finish line, you got only 10 miles left, but you still have 10 miles of running. left. Wow. And, uh, And I hung out there for a little bit. I think I ate some potato chips, drank a Coke and some chicken soup and got back up and continued.
0: Wow, man, that is unbelievable. There's so much like, there's so much in that. So how'd you feel when you finished? Was that like just unbelievable? Well, I was ready to, you know, at at
1: that exact moment, like right when you cross the finish line, you're like, you know, thank God this is over. Um, can I find a, like a milkshake and a burger, um, as fast as possible? And can I rest my feet the next day? you start to really kind of soak it in and and, and go, wow, you know, that was, you know, a a year's worth of training and a, a lot of sacrifice. I mean, parts of your life sacrifice, you know, you sacrifice some family time you sacrifice work time. Um, and you're happy that nothing went wrong during the day. Cause for a lot of people, um, you know, there were big waves at the start of that race. So there were about 2,500 people who towed the line, 600 of them never finished the swim. Um, so there were 600 people in that particular race that couldn't get out beyond the ocean break and, and, and deal with the, the roughness of the water. So, you know, the accomplishment, you start to soak it in because you realize there's 600 other people or maybe 800 other people that put in all the same time, training and effort, and they don't get the accomplishment or the feeling of it at the end.
0: Wow. That is unbelievable, man. Geez, well, congrats. That's incredible. What an accomplishment. I mean, that's a marathon in of itself is a major life accomplishment. And you you did an Ironman. That's just that's just beyond anything I can comprehend. <laughs> awesome. Thanks for- awesome, man. I wish we could talk. Uh, I've got so much more that I'd love to talk to you about. I know we're at the end of our, uh, our time, but uh, for the sake of the people that are listening and I know captivated by the stuff that you've shared, um, what do you want to leave them with? Any other uh, nuggets that would be good for uh, the up and coming leaders or people that want to lead themselves better?
1: Yeah, I'll share, I'll share one last quick, uh, I don't know if it's a peril of wisdom, but it's something that I try to keep top of mind all the time. So I, I read a study, it's probably, probably close to 10 years ago, and I have to go back and try to Google it and get the source and, and cite the study. Maybe I share it with you and you can put it out there to your audience. But it talked about the, the thought process and the vision of thought process connected to economic success. And I'm going to share what they talked about related to economic success in terms of wealth building. But I actually think it, that the same study could be applied to just success as a leader or success in business, not necessarily about accumulation of wealth. But this particular study had to do with how people think and vision in the future related to wealth. It said that people who are in extreme poverty, they can't think beyond one day. So imagine that you were food-deprived, clothing-deprived, shelter-deprived. You're thinking, just today, how do I eat? How do I maybe bathe? How do I survive? And you don't have the ability to think beyond 24 hours. People who are then otherwise not deemed to be in poverty but are deemed to have really no wealth accumulation or are poor they're able to think about a week ahead of time. That's the proverbial paycheck to paycheck liver, which is I can sort of anticipate what's coming two, three, four days because I economically have enough money for a week. People who begin to accumulate some money, maybe moderate savings, moderate wealth, think about a month out. People who become wealthy think about a year out. And then the ultra wealthy, they actually vision and think three to five years out related to their money. And so again, this study was about money, John, but I think about the same thing from a leadership perspective. I think the ultra successful leader that builds a big business, if they're a self-employed business owner, rises to a C-suite to be a chief financial officer, or chief executive officer, they don't think day to day, right? They think three to five, maybe even 10 years out, the people who, you know, kind of get stuck maybe at middle level success, they build a moderately sized business or become middle management or a VP like me, maybe they can think one year ahead of time and so on and so forth down. So I think it's a powerful um, exercise, you know, to a certain extent, it it states the obvious, which is you need to be a long range thinker, Mm -hmm. but people have actually taken the time to study that and connect, you know, how much time are you spending looking down the road Mm -hmm. two, three, four years, the more time you do that, your actions will likely follow your thoughts. And you have a greater chance to rise as a business owner, as a leader, as an executive.
0: Wow, I love that. I've never heard that study, and that is such good stuff. And that that's that's a great um, that's really a great almost a test for somebody to just think. Where are your thoughts normally? You know, what length of time are you thinking out? Um, that's a really fascinating. I agree. I think that the best leaders are are always thinking so far down the road and anticipating things, envisioning. Um, That's terrific. Great stuff. Awesome, my man. Well, I so am grateful that you joined today. I know this is uh, by far going to be a, a one of our most popular uh, episodes for sure. So great, great stuff. So happy to hear all the success you're having and happiness at home and uh, the triathlons and work and everything going so well for you. So keep up all the great stuff. And I hope at some point we get you back and we'll do part two of this.
1: Thanks for having me, buddy. Good yeah. to see you.
0: So this has been Brian Mora, Franchise Field Vice President with Ameriprise Financial, very accomplished leader, triathlete, family man, uh, successful at life. And I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Be sure to like it, subscribe, put some comments down, suggestions on future topics. Love to hear everything you have. This has been today's episode of Tomorrow's Leader. Look forward to having you next time. Thanks.